seated, and if you have kids you'd like to send to children's ministry, you can do so now. And if you want to uh, open your Bibles to our text this morning, we'll be in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 1. But a a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Just pause for a moment and let you know this is not a sermon about hoarding toilet paper. Just as I was reading the text, I thought some of you may think I'm going there. That's most definitely not what's going to happen today. Back to verse 5. But when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So we're going to look more deeply at this text next week. We're just continuing through the book of Acts. We're now in chapter 5 and we're going to look more deeply at this text next week. But today I want you to pay attention in particular to verses 5 and verses 11. Verse 5 says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And verse 11 says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So these verses bear some similarity to other portions of the text in Acts 1 through 5, in which the summary of the congregation's condition is provided. There are a number of passages, and these are what we're going to. This is what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this pattern. There are a number of passages in which Luke takes a moment and says, "And this is how the congregation was feeling. This is what the congregation was thinking. This is how the congregation was acting in response to these things." So, I think one of the things that's going on here is is that Luke is careful to tell us about the numerical growth in the early church. And I think these passages, of which there are probably four or five, these summary statements in which he says, and everyone felt this way, or and everyone did this thing. These are sort of the complement to the numerical statements. Paul or Luke is saying on one hand, they really grew numerically. And these statements are sort of examples of, and they really grew spiritually too. But each one of these statements also has this other kind of commonality to it, 
And that is that he's just over and over again defining unity for us. I think I've mentioned before that often in, a, in an existing church, after a while, you begin to uh, communicate or you begin to think about unity as the absence of conflict, right? And, and if you've been married for any length of time, you know that you can fall into this trap as well. And you could have a marriage that goes 20 plus years that never had any hot conflict, but also never had any true unity, right? And so I think one of the things that Luke's doing in this passage is he's saying, True unity is not merely the absence of conflict. It's the presence of certain things. It's the presence of certain qualities. It's the presence of certain ethos. But another thing that we have to really notice in this passage, or in in the first five chapters, is that most of these sort of summary statements of, and then they were all together. Like the Acts 5 is two unity statements. Uh, they, they, They felt the fear of the Lord together. Earlier in Acts 4, the unity statement, they all experienced boldness together. These unity statements, these corporate summaries of their, of their corporate attitude and emotion together, they often follow adversity. Right? So, so in Acts 5, something really difficult and painful has occurred in the life of the church. Ananias and Sapphira have, have both dropped dead because of a lie they told regarding property they sold the statement in Acts four thirty one, in which they're all affirmed to have boldness together. Well, that kind of unity came about because they were threatened. They were threatened not to speak any longer of the resurrection of Jesus. So one of the things Luke's helping us to see, I think here is, is that, you know, unity in the church happens just as much or even more so after difficulty or in the midst of difficulty as it did in the days of peace and ease. The church is in this way uh, anti-fragile. It actually gets better when things get harder. I think you could say that. You know, there's this, path, there's this moment where Jesus says to the disciples, you will all, you'll all run away. This is right before the cross. And he says, because if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So Jesus was struck, and as a consequence of his being struck, he died on a cross, was buried, and then raised three days later because the grave could not contain him. He then showed himself for 40 days to witnesses and then ascended to the right hand of the Father where he will never be struck again. Like, the nation's rage, Psalm 2 says. The enemies take their best swing at Jesus, but they just can't reach up that high. And so the shepherd can't be struck anymore. The shepherd was struck. The shepherd rose above the striking. And now he reigns at the right hand of the father, no longer to be struck. And what does that mean for us in our unity? That means that every difficult time has really no bearing on whether or not we can walk together in unity because our shepherd won't be struck. The sheep don't have to scatter. So one of the things we see in these corporate summary statements is, you know, these hard times actually seem to pull the church together. Whereas hard times tend to scatter individuals, hard times tend to pull the church together. I'm reading this. I started reading it last night, kind of too late to integrate it well into my sermon. But I'm reading this study in which researchers examine the religious views of individuals and then examine their responses to plagues. And there's this thing called extrinsic and intrinsic religiosity. 
And extrinsic religiosity is sort of like someone who claims to be religious, but mostly just does that for social benefit. And then intrinsic religiosity is someone who actually believes the stuff that they say and is actually like following their religion uh, for internal, internally significant reasons. And what they found is that when a plague, and a plague can be broadly defined as any sort of outside threat, any sort of outside exponential virulent threat, when a plague comes into a culture, those with extrinsic religious principles, meaning they're just kind of in it for the social value, they freak out. They get fearful, they get um, exclusionary, they get selfish, so on and so forth. But they found over and over again that this group of people who had these intrinsic religiosity, is what they describe it as, they found that when when threats come from the outside to that group of people, that group of people actually tends to grow and tends to strengthen, and they tend to persevere quite well. So one of the things I want to think about today is just, how do you say this? What are the attitudes that Paul shows us in the first five chapters of Acts that sort of display for us how we can, in difficult times, walk in and enjoy uncommon unity? There was this, uh, this, this intellectual in the Enlightenment named Montesquieu the Enlightenment was kind of a, an interesting deal because they're just taking scientific principles and applying them to different areas of life. And Montesquieu decided to study governments, world governments. And he kind of wanted to know, like, like, what kind of governments are there? So he did sort of the thing that you would think of in biology. He classified governments, you know, just like we would do with genus and species and so forth. And he wound up deciding that there are three basic governments that have always existed. Tyranny monarchy, and some kind of a democracy slash republic. These are the three main kinds of governments that he observed, not only in the West, but just as he began to think more broadly about, not, and not only national governments, but just even local governments and so on. He saw these three basic forms existing, tyranny, monarchy, and some sort of democratic or republic. And then he went a, a little bit deeper in all of his studies, and he, he asked, what attitude is necessary to keep each one of these continuing, to keep each one of these ongoing. So the attitude necessary to keep tyranny slash dictatorships in in power is fear, right? So if if you're a tyrant slash dictator, the way you stay in power is you spread a culture of fear in in your society. And that's because uh, if you have all the power isolated on one individual, of course, you don't really have any power. The populace has much more power than you, and so how do you keep them from realizing or exercising that they have much more power than you? Well, you keep them in fear, and so that's when you've got secret police and, and purges. Uh, there's always this, this effort to in, instill fear to keep the tyrant in control. So what was, the, uh, what was the necessary ethos or attitude for the monarchy? How do you keep a monarchy together? Well, Montesquieu decided through his studies that honor was the essential ethic to keep a monarchy uh, in place. And he was really big on the word courtesy because courtesy just means courtliness. It's, it's the word that essentially speaks of acting in a way appropriate to being in a king's court. So the, the reason why a monarchy needs honor 
is because all of the king's power comes from God, whoever God is in that particular culture, whoever they think is God. All the, all the, all the, uh, all the power comes from down into this monarch and then is dispersed into individuals who are closest to the king. And so that's where you get this system of courtliness, of courtesy, of protocol and etiquette, and so on and so forth. And Montesquieu said that when people lose their respect for that, uh, that system of honor, the monarchy will collapse. And he said usually it'll collapse into a dictatorship. Now, how, how, how do Democrat, uh, democratic Republican, uh, republic uh, governments stay in place? Well, he decided that was through primarily culture, like engagement, ownership, what we would call citizenship. So he said that the, 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 the greatest danger to a democracy is apathy, is the apathy of its citizens. So it's really interesting that he was able to look at these, this, the whole world and say there are three basic, basically three kinds of governments, and these are the one or two or three attitudes necessary to keep this particular kind of government in place. And then you think, well, is that true of the church? You know, what are the attitudes necessary to keep the church strong? Well, that list is probably pretty long, but Acts provides us with three qualities we see expressed as visions of health, unity in the state state of unusual times. And the first one is this, courage in the face of fear. What attitudes are necessary to make the church strong, to keep the church going well? Well, one of the things we see in the book of Acts is courage in the face of fear. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 says that when they had prayed, then they prayed in, in response to persecution and opposition. They prayed in response to the threat of suffering. If they continued to preach the gospel, it says in Acts 4, 31, When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. One of the things I don't want us to miss is every time we see the church have this fresh infusion of unity, the Holy Spirit's behind it. So so the Holy Spirit has fresh faith, fresh hope, fresh emotions for us in the face of new sufferings. So the Holy Spirit furnishes the church here with a sense of boldness, with courage in the face of fear. Now, I want to talk about two ways of thinking about fear. Years ago, my wife was friends with this lady, and, uh, and, and she uh, was a, a relatively new believer. Her husband was not a believer. He was a truck driver, and she basically forced her husband to come talk to me. And, uh, and he did it, you know, he's like, he didn't want to, but he did it. And the reason why she forced him to come talk to me was he was a truck driver and he was starting to have panic attacks about wrecking his truck. He was just sort of living in this perpetual state of fear about the possibility of wrecking his truck. So he's sitting on my couch in my living room and, uh, and he's talking and I'm listening and and then he said, so what do you think? Like, you know, what do you think? And here's what I thought. This is what I told him. I said, well, I hear this. I hear these patterns in your, in your, in your, in your speech. Number one, you say, I'm afraid. Number two, you say, and that's really stupid because my fear is relatively irrational. 
And then number three, you seek to comfort yourself by citing statistics. Right? So that's what was happening. I'm afraid. I feel really stupid for being afraid. I shouldn't be afraid because it's more likely that I'll be struck by lightning or whatever, whatever the stats that he was using. It's more likely that blah, blah, blah will happen. Or accidents have never, one of the things he would say was, I've never been in an accident before. So what was he doing? Well, he was using math as a source of comfort. And whoever thought that was a good idea? Like, I haven't felt math as a source of comfort since, like, third grade, maybe. I want to present two options to you. Uh, one is odds reasoning, and the other is Romans eating. <laughs> right? So if you're, if you're looking for comfort, you have two choices, I think. And one is odds making, and, and the other is Romans eating. Uh, this guy's sitting on my couch, and I just say, so here's the thing. The Bible's weird about the way it brings comfort, because the Bible will actually tell you not that bad things won't ever happen to you. It just tells you, you know, I can, uh, I can harden your, your life and your hope and your love to such an extent that even bad things bless you. It's like, the Bible does this weird thing where it would tell you, if tomorrow you get in a wreck, your big rig slides off the side of some icy Colorado mountain, and you are dead in the cab at the bottom of the hill. What do you have? And what have you lost? So the Bible doesn't try to convince you that the odds are in your favor. The Bible says, you know what? Weird things happen. You could get struck by lightning tomorrow. What do you have? And what have you lost if you die? So Romans 8 Starts all the way at the very beginning of the chapter of Romans 8. But of course, I'm thinking of, of, of course, Romans 8, 28, right? Which says that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But then love that Paul moves from that positive statement in which he just says all things work together for the good. Now, he could have just said that and he could have said extrapolate from there uh, because all things really means all things. But we're so neurotic. We're so neurotic that we, would, we, will, we will think of something that might not fit under the all things. Like, I don't think it, he means viruses, you know. Like, like, whatever all things is, we will think of the exception, the potential exception to the all things. Or, most importantly, we are so prone to doubt God's love for us that we will assume there is some way in which God can be dislodged from his kindness and faithfulness from his good intentions for those that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul goes on from Romans 8:28 and he keeps Romans 8ing, but now he does it in a negative way. And he says, let's imagine the worst. Let's imagine the worst. And in verse 34 he says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a very exhaustive list. How does the church find courage in the face of hardship? We don't find courage in the face of hardship by statistics. We find courage in the face of hardship by sovereignty. By the truth that if God gave his own son for us, how will he not also freely give us all things? And that even if the worst happens, the worst cannot separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. So instead of odds reasoning, we go through Romans 8. There's a second quality you see in the book of Acts. A second quality of unity you see. And that is generosity in the face of lack. Generosity in the face of lack. In Montesquieu's formulation, monarchy only works if honor and courtesy were shared, right? Monarchy only works if honor and courtesy are shared. The word courtesy, just another way of saying courtliness. Why was, why was courtesy so essential? Because that's how power was distributed. This is a very ancient and classic sentiment. The new believers in this particular moment would have understood this idea that the closer you are to the king, the more honor you should receive. That's how they would have thought. We're very American, so this is not cool with us. But uh, this is certainly how they would have thought. The closer you are to the king, the more honor you should receive. Well, Jesus comes, and he's the king of the kings. He's the king of all the kings. And he deserves all honor, dominion, and power. So the new believers have a new king, and he's the king of all the kings. But here's the real cultural innovation. He seeks and saves people without a view to their social status. So he starts seeking and saving people who are rich and who are poor and who are smart and who are dumb and who are pretty and who are ugly. He starts saving all sorts of people. He starts saving all sorts of ethnicities, all sorts of locations, all sorts of socioeconomic status. And now this very interesting thing emerges, and this is the real innovation behind Acts 2 and Acts 4 and those statements of extreme generosity. Suddenly, all sorts of people are best friends with the king. And they deserve honor because of their proximity to the king. Suddenly, one's proximity to the king is not connected to socioeconomic class or ethnicity or family line, but simply by the fact that Jesus has sought and saved them and called them a brother or sister. So what do you make of this extreme generosity in the face of real lack? In Acts 4.32, for instance, when they have all things in common, when landowners sell their land so that there will be no poor among them. What do you make of all that? Well, this is a radical extension 
of something that had already been well established in their culture. If the king is your brother, you deserve honor. What's so cool is, is that the selling of the land, guys, we, we, we did a couple of mess, a message on this two weeks ago, but, but another element of this is so amazing is this is the aristocracy, the landowners, liquidating their assets because the brother of the king needs some money. This is a sense of honor, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of ethnicity and so on and so forth. So one of the attitudes the church has in the face of suffering is extreme generosity in the face of lack so that when many others are hoarding and they're scared and they're holding up, followers of Jesus say, you're important. You're important to God. And I want to make sure that you're taken care of. As Galatians 6 says, right? Do good to to, to everybody as much as you have opportunity, but especially to those who are in the household of faith. I want to turn your attention practically, specifically to those that are older. One of the things that's going on in this particular moment, as we walk through this particular situation, is that the people that are older in our communities are the most threatened by it. And the rules for them are just different in this particular case. You know, who in our culture, see, I I think that the whole care for the poor thing is actually a swing and a miss in many respects. I think that's actually misunderstood in many respects. And I've I've talked about some of that. I think the real message of the scriptures is, is who in your culture is most likely to be left behind and considered less than? Find that person and show them honor. Well, our culture worships youth and vitality and speed. So let's run in the other direction. Let's run the other direction and love and honor and protect the older people. What it means is, is that every one of us, by our association with Jesus, is worthy of equal honor. The third attitude, fear in the face of judgment. Now, (laughs) this gets a little confusing because my first point was, Confidence in the face of suffering. And my third point is fear in the face of judgment. How do those two go together? Well, I get this from verses 5 and 11 of Acts chapter 5, in which God's judgment fell upon Ananias and Sapphira in the appropriate response of the congregation was to be afraid. Was to feel a renewed sense of the fear of the Lord. I don't think we understand how critical the fear of the Lord is to unity and mission in the local church. I was looking at Jesus' letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Boy, It seems to me that even when he's encouraging a local church, he is appearing in such a way as to provoke a godly fear. I think we have forgotten how helpful, how beneficial the fear of the Lord really is. I think we've forgotten that. 
And so how can God bless his church in this particular moment? Well, how did God bless his church in the moment when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in their midst? Because God's going to bless the church in every situation. How did he bless them? He blessed them by giving them a godly fear. There really is no disconnect between saying, on the one hand, we can have courage when facing difficult things, and we should have fear when facing judgment. There's no disparity there. Think of it this way. Because God holds my life in his hands, I should possess a godly courage. And because God holds my life in his hands, I should have a godly fear. That makes sense, right? Acts chapter, uh, Psalm 91. This is, I've seen this on Facebook a number of times. Uh, Psalm 91, let me just read a few verses to you. This is the beautiful, profound psalm of protection. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This was this, was this uh, well, I'll tell you that in a minute. Uh, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near to your tent. So back to the trucker on my couch real quick. That day, that man prayed to receive Jesus and was saved. He was baptized in a YMCA pool about a month later. And Psalm 91 was his favorite psalm. So on the one hand, we can say, God's going to be with me. We can, we can, we can pray with confidence Psalm 91. But, but listen to Psalm 90. This is the Psalm of Moses. A man who'd seen a few plagues. He says this. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. How does the church respond in difficult times? Well, firstly, let's have courage in the face of difficulty secondly let's be generous in the face of lack but third let's not forget to have a godly fear the message portrayed through this particular moment in time is among many that life is short and uncertain and far beyond our delusions of control there's a chance that more than a million americans will die from the coronavirus in the next few months. 
there's a chance it could be much less severe, and God knows how it'll all shake out. What's God doing right now? Well, whatever he is doing, this is where I'll get into trouble. Whatever he is doing right now is for the good of the church. So what does that good look like? Well, maybe we wind up having a little more confidence in him. Maybe we wind up having a little more fear of him. And maybe we have the moment, the opportunity in this moment, to show real love, real care, real concern, real generosity, and make the name of Jesus known and praised in our city. What is God doing through all this? He's blessing his church. Of that I can assure you. He's glorifying his name. Of that I can assure you. As he said to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. If you've been around for a while, you've probably taken some bumps and bruises along the way, probably had some moments where you really weren't sure you were going to get up you were really going to be able to go on. Some of those seasons have been self-inflicted, and some of them have had nothing to do with you whatsoever, except that they nearly killed you. What's God doing in these deep waves of hard, hard pain? How is that okay? How is it just? If you walk away from that season knowing that there is no one like God, then whatever you endured is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory in knowing God. This and every other season of hardship, uncertainty, and suffering is light and momentary if it produces for us confidence that there is no one like God in all the earth. Let me pray.